All right, so we're going to be in Ezekiel. We're going to start off in Ezekiel 20, verse 45, and I'll explain to you why in just a minute. And we're going to look at Ezekiel 21. Ezekiel 21 is a prophecy from Ezekiel that goes in four parts, um, four oracles, if you will. They are all about the avenging sword of the Lord. And the reason why God gives a prophecy the way he does, he's going to explain to us in chapter 20, beginning at verse 45. So we're going to see, you know, the Lord's been given a message. How many of you guys know that God often calls his people to repentance over sin in their life and God's people don't always respond? So, so I know sometimes we read the Bible and we go, this is the same thing he said last chapter. That's because they didn't listen last chapter. So he gives it again and again and again. 490 years of calling people to repentance. If you have children, you know what this is like. You have not just said one time to your children, clean your room. And it can't be a shock to them that you're going to want the room clean because that's pretty much been normal operating procedure since they were old enough to understand English language. But somehow, you still magically have to tell them. In the same way, we see the nation of Israel respond to God's prophetic word through his prophets, and every time we look at Israel and we go, oh my gosh, why are they so dumb? We should stop wherever we're at, pick up a mirror, and look in it and call ourselves Israel because we do the same stuff. So as we take a look at it, listen to what the Lord says in verse 45. So the word of the Lord came to me, to Ezekiel, son of man, set your face toward the south land and preach against the south, prophesy against the forest land of the Negeb. Say to the forest of the Negeb, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I will kindle a fire in you, and it shall devour every green tree and every dry tree. The blazing flame will not be clenched, and all faces from north to south will be scorched by it. All flesh shall see that I, the Lord, have kindled it. It shall not be quenched. So that's the word God gave to Ezekiel. Now, Ezekiel's faithful. He goes and he delivers the word. Whatever word, remember, part of the deal with Ezekiel the prophet is, he only speaks, the Lord says, you only speak when I give you something to say. So there would be days Ezekiel come outside and just look at everybody. And then go back in his house. And today there's not a word from the Lord. But when there was a word from the Lord, Ezekiel spoke. Now Ezekiel was probably getting a little sensitive as a prophet of God. And you can't, you can't be upset at prophets of God for this. You probably shouldn't be upset at preachers or anybody who teaches or, or shares the word because um, it, it, it can be draining when you, when you teach and there's little to no response. And, so the, and then sometimes there's mockery instead of response, especially if you were one of the prophets in the Old Testament, right? So here's, listen to what Ezekiel says. The Lord's given him this prophecy, and here's what Ezekiel says. Then I said, oh, Lord God, they're saying of me, is he not a maker of parables? Now, the word in Hebrew for parable is the same as the word for riddle. 
And the idea is, uh, you just speak in riddles, we don't know what you're talking about. We can't understand what you mean. Now, in this initial prophecy that the Lord gives to him, he's letting them know, remember, again, the primary focus for Ezekiel, at least until we get to chapter 24, is that God's judging Jerusalem. And you have a refugee population outside of Babylon that Ezekiel's talking to, and they think they are God's hated one or the judged ones. Their lives are over. They don't have anything to live for because if they were truly loved of God, they'd still be in Jerusalem. And you and I know that's exactly the opposite. God delivered the people that he wanted in the refugee camp to bring about another generation, the next generation that's going to return in 70 years to the land. All the people in Jerusalem are going to die. But the refugees can't believe that such a thing is possible. It's totally outside their scope of idea. Probably the closest thing that we could understand it would be prior to 9-11, you would have never believed someone could have flown airplanes into the Twin Towers. I remember that day being so shocked that something like that could happen. Like, don't they know who we are? And how in the world did they get all these planes? But when it happened, you realize, oh, yeah, it can happen. For the children of Israel, that's how they thought about the temple. The temple is God's home, God's house. It will never be destroyed. Jerusalem is a place where God has written his name. The Lord would never allow Jerusalem to fall. But here it is the Lord saying, no, man, this, you're so apostate, I am taking you out of the land. God is, in regard to Israel, God is the landlord of the promised land. That's his land. Well, the Bible tells us the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So it's all his. But this particular spot that he set aside, that's his. And he told the children of Israel way back in Deuteronomy, he says, look, when you guys come into the land, if you do all these things, which they did, each one of them, when you do all these things, I'm going to throw you out of the land. Just like somebody who doesn't pay rent. What happens to them? Unless it's in the middle of COVID and they live in California. <laughs> yeah. If they don't pay rent in California, they stay for free. That's how that works. We all know that. But normally, right, you, they get thrown out of the house. Hey, you don't pay rent. That's, that's how that works. And so... The Lord, to the Lord, the Lord deserves the glory, the honor from the people for giving them the land, providing for them, taking care of them. He said, if you're unfaithful to me, so the relationship in the Bible is pictured as a marriage between God and Israel. If you're unfaithful to me, I'm going to put you out. So the exile that we're reading about is God putting them out. Now, the Lord doesn't cut them off completely. He keeps a remnant a generation that is going to raise, rise up in 70 years and go back, rebuild the temple. That's the temple, by the way, that Jesus is going to come to. They're going to rebuild the temple. Herod's going to, going to uh, um, refurbish it, but they're going to do the initial rebuilding in Ezra and Nehemiah. They're going to rebuild it. So, so this is a time of preparation, 70 years, because God has declared, you never gave the land a rest. And because you never gave the land a rest for 490 years, I'm going to throw you out of the land for 70 years. If you do the math, 
That is one year for each of the Sabbath years they miss. Six years work the field, the seventh year give the land rest. This is a, this is a, a common theme with the Lord. You, you understand that the concept of Sabbath rest is important. The idea of Sabbath rest exists before there is a law called uh, the, the law of the Sabbath, the fourth commandment. You go all the way back, the Bible says the Lord created the earth in how many days? And what did he do on the seventh? Was there a law then? Nope. But there's a principle, isn't there? So there's this idea of rest. Now we know that Jesus Christ is going to be our Sabbath rest. And so the Lord said, it's a part of the Sabbath, I want the land to have rest. Now, if you remember in our own history, back to the days of the Dust Bowl, you remember what occurs when you have a series of, of uh, um, what, what would you call it, changes, weather changes, some drought and stuff, and the land didn't get rest. And they, we lost all the topsoil in the, in the Middle West, right? The Midwest, it just all blows away. And, and it just happens to coincide with... Uh, a little thing called the, what do they call that? Depression, yeah. Right? So everybody ran out of money about the same time. And so you start to see the principles that the Lord had laid out for his people. Now, they're disobedient to him, so God is doing this work. But the people don't believe it. Do you know that people still don't believe what God's doing? That's not new, right? That's not new. So here he's saying, Nebuchadnezzar is going to come to the south. He says, Ezekiel, prophesy, turn your face against the southland. The southland's Judah and Jerusalem. So Nebuchadnezzar is going to run a two-pronged attack. The next time when he destroys the, the city, he's going to run a two-pronged attack. Uh, uh, he's going to send one army south, one army north. He's going to crush him in the middle. And so the Lord is, is giving out this, this parable, this this riddle to the people because the Bible is literature that is designed for meditation. The Lord doesn't get any better reaction from us when he tells us straight. For example, love your neighbor. That seems relatively simple, doesn't it? Yet we see Jesus ask the question, yes, Lord, but who is my neighbor? Do you remember? So it's not, a, it's not, if the Lord would just tell me, I've heard people tell me this so many times, if God would just say it plain, it would not make any difference to you. It doesn't make any difference. The concept of meditative literature means I'm supposed to take the word of God and meditate on it, chew on it, study it, give, put effort in my pursuit of comprehension of the Lord. And so as we come to the word of God, this is what, this is what the Lord is doing through Ezekiel. Now, Ezekiel says, man, the people are calling me the Riddler. I come outside, they call me the Riddler. I find all these question marks all over, painted all over my, my hut. Well, basically, that's what he said, the teller of parables. You know, don't, don't lose sight of what the Bible's saying just because it, it sounds different than we talk today. He's, a, he's just a maker of parables. So... The Lord is going to do something interesting. The Lord is going to say, okay, I want to make it clear. Basically, Ezekiel is saying, 
They're calling me the babbler, the parable maker. So, so okay, we'll make it clear. So we're going to get four oracles in the next chapter. Four oracles, four messages about what he just said that he's going to try to make clearer for the people in Ezekiel 21. And these are the riddles of the sword. And the first one uh, is just that, the riddle of the sword. Let's look at verse 1, 21. So the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, set your face toward Jerusalem. So he doesn't say Southland anymore. So do they know who he's prophesying about? Jerusalem. Southern kingdom, northern kingdom's already gone. Southern kingdom, he's prophesying against Jerusalem. Preach against the sanctuary, prophesy against the land of Israel. So there's three targets to the prophecy uh, of the riddle of the sword. Jerusalem, the temple, and the land of Israel. Okay, what's going to happen when Nebuchadnezzar comes? There's going to be no more Jerusalem, no more temple, no more land of Israel. For 70 years, she's going to pass out of sight. And the trial of this riddle is going to affect everyone in Jerusalem. Everyone. Say to the land of Israel, thus says the Lord, behold, I am against you. It, no, there's not much of a riddle there, right? Who's bringing the judgment? So God's bringing the judgment. So I am against you. I will draw my sword from its sheath. So this is not like a riddle about the forest fire. This is I'm pulling a sword. So if you were to go home today, and I don't know, you're getting ready to pull your car into the driveway, and there's a dude standing in your driveway, and as your headlights hit him, he pulls out his sword, you're probably thinking, this is not good. Right? Or you're not looking at the situation going, I wonder what this means. <laughs> right? Uh, especially in that day, in those days, the only guys who pulled out swords, that, that's like drawing a gun. That's bad. It's not some guy playing, uh, what's that stuff they play in the park? No, Russian roulette. <laughs> what, kind of, what kind of park do you play in? <laughs> oh, my goodness. You guys know what I'm talking about? They dress up and... Really? Wow, I'm, I'm not smart enough to repeat that. Okay, so anyways, it's not guys playing with swords. Real guy, real sword. The Lord is drawing the sword. Listen to what he says. I will take my sword from its sheath and I will cut off from you both righteous and wicked. So the judgment's going to affect everybody in the city. There's no, there's no past. You know when the, when the plagues came, there were times when God made his distinction between his people and the Egyptians. But not every plague came with a distinction. So the Lord is saying this is going to affect everybody in the city. Everybody in the city. Now, you need to understand, you might say to yourself, well, why? How could, how, could the, how could that be? Because even the righteous have ignored the word of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah has been ignored the entire history of his life, telling the people that the judgment of God had come, surrender, give yourself over to Babylon and live. And the people said, well, that can't be what God wants. So the Lord says, I'm going to draw my sword on the righteous and the wicked. The whole city is going down. It's no different than the angels coming to Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah and God letting them know through the angels, I'm going to destroy the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. You need to get out. And Lot is waiting. Oh, 
I don't know. I haven't packed. You know, if you read the story, it says that the angels finally grab him and drag him from the city. So if, if, and those of his family, right? We know the story of Lot's wife. Those of his family who would not have it any other way wanted back in the city. Judgment fell on them. So that so the same concept, the Lord has said, hey, judgment's coming. You can get out, but if you stay, no complaining about fire coming out of heaven. I have given fair warning. And so he's saying, I'm going to cut you off, both the righteous and the, with, and the wicked. Therefore, my sword will be drawn from its sheath against all flesh from south to north. So the, it'll be the end of the entire, uh, the entire country. And all flesh will know that I am the Lord. And this is God's point. The, the concept is, look, uh, there is a judgment day. All throughout the Old Testament, there's this idea that, that God will judge sin. God will judge sin. Why does the Lord tell us that over and over and over again? Because somehow in our time, we still think God's not going to judge sin. God's, God has finally progressed into with our culture and he's going to acknowledge that all sin is okay now but the lord has never done that so the lord is going to judge sin the wages of sin is okay jesus christ paid that price right so you don't have to die why should you die israel this is what ezekiel says to the nation why should you die repent and live but the people just like it says in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, the people loved their sin. They loved the darkness more than the light. Why does God tell us this over and over again? Because God will judge. You ever read Revelation? That great white throne judgment? That's going to be a crazy day. The Lord will judge sin. I, all flesh will know that I am the Lord. I have drawn my sword it will not be sheathed again. So news of the disaster in Jerusalem is going to reach Babylon in January 585. That's when the refugees, the, the final refugees from Jerusalem will, will land in Babylon. It will have already have been destroyed. They'll get there in January. It was destroyed in August. So August, September, October, November, December. So five months later is when the refugees get there to tell them the news, Jerusalem is gone. No cell phone, no Facebook, no email. You only got word when somebody told you what was happening. And here's the interpretation. Now, we're going to see in each one of these oracles, God's going to give his word. <clears throat> so Jeremiah will deliver the word. And then there's a sign act. God often had Ezekiel do sign acts. He's going to ask Ezekiel to do something to really drive home the idea that's being uh, this being spoken about. So here's, here's the Lord's instructions to Ezekiel. As for you, son of man, groan with breaking heart and bitter grief, groan before their eyes. And when they say to you, why do you groan? You shall say, because of the news that is coming. Every heart will melt. All hands will be feeble. Every spirit will faint. All knees will be weak as water. Behold, it is coming and it will be fulfilled. So he tells Jeremiah, I want you to weep and moan and groan after you give this prophecy. And when they ask you, why are you doing that, Ezekiel? You tell them, because I know what's coming. The news that is coming. It's not here yet. 
that it's coming. These things are going to take place. So that is the first oracle, the riddle of the sword. Second oracle is the song of the sword. That picks up in verse 8. And the word of the Lord came to me, son of, son of man, prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord, a sword, a sword is sharpened and also polished, sharpened for slaughter, polished to flash like lightning. Or shall we rejoice? For you have despised the rod, my son, with everything of wood. So here's what the Lord is declaring. And the second one, the song of the sword. Again, it's the same prophecy, same idea. Nebuchadnezzar's coming. Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. But this one, he's emphasizing the reason. Why is the sword coming? Because you despised the chastening of the Lord. Because God tried to correct through his prophets. And the prophets that he sent, some you listened to, some you sawn into, some you murdered, some you treated horribly. But the one thing that's in common is you didn't listen to the chastening of the Lord. You ignored God's attempt to correct Payday, someday. You can't turn a deaf ear to God's correction eternally. Eventually, like a good father, judgment will come. When we talk about discipline with our children, we need to understand that discipline follows two paths. Path number one is instruction. That's what the scripture talks about when it talks about the chastening of the Lord. Hebrews, we're going to look at it in a minute. Don't despise the chastening of the Lord. That's, that's God's instruction, correcting our, our misgivings, misunderstandings, uh, our crooked bents. He's correcting that. How do you correct it? First, you do it through instruction. But there will come a time when instruction is not heeded, instruction is not heeded, instruction is not heeded that the second part comes. The second part of parenting is discipline. Discipline is what the scripture talks of as God's judgment. He disciplines. So he is going to wash the land free of all the rebels. He's going to, to cast out the generation that has ignored him. And he's going to raise up a generation that will listen. It's one of the things that I think it, we have in common with the time period we find ourselves in today. Because I think we're, we're seeing God casting off a generation and prayerfully raising up a generation to, to go uh, in the direction that the Lord wants. So here is what it says in Hebrews 12, 3 through 11. He says, consider him, speaking of Christ, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Don't be weary when reproved. That's the word corrected. Don't grow weary when being corrected, reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves. He chastises every son he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there that the father does not discipline? 
So we understand this is, this is not just an Old Testament concept. This is something that God has done and, and continues to do. And so he's laying out the idea of this prophecy that the reason the sword is coming is because the Bible says in the book of Proverbs, a fool will not receive correction. And the fool's path goes to, according to Proverbs, death. And the wise path goes to life. So the fool will not respond to correction. Won't respond to correction. Won't respond to correction. So he's destroyed. But the wise man, he does respond. And so the idea is that this judgment has come because you have despised uh, uh, the rod that God has brought. So the sword is given to be polished, that it may be grasped in the hand. It is sharpened and polished to be given to the hand of the slayer. Ultimately, that's going to be the king of Babylon. Verse 12. Now, this is his instruction to Ezekiel. Remember I told you he gives a prophecy, and then there's instruction, like what he's supposed to act out. As for you, oh, I'm sorry, cry out and wail, son of man, for it is against my people. It is against all the princes of Israel. That's their government, their rulers, that the Lord holds responsible for not directing the people back into a line with, uh, with God's word. Uh, they are delivered over to the sword with my people. Strike, therefore, upon your thigh, for it will not be a testing. What could it do if you despise the rod, declares the Lord God? And as for you, son of man... Prophesy, clap your hands and let the sword come down twice, just three times, the sword for those to be slain. So here you have Ezekiel acting it out. How's he going to act it out? He's got something that represents a sword. It could be a real sword. Who knows? I, I'm doubting the Babylonians gave swords to the refugees. That, that would probably create a bit of a problem. So it could be a stick that he's holding. But the point is, he's acting out the idea of somebody swinging a sword. Once, twice, three times, uh, the sword is coming down. Uh, the sword for those to be slain. It is the sword for the great slaughter which surrounds them. Their hearts may melt and many stumble. At all their gates I have given them the glittering sword. That means there's nowhere to go. There's no escape for the people in Jerusalem. It is made like lightning. It is taken up for slaughter, cut sharply to the right. Set yourself to the left. Wherever your face is directed, I will clap my hands. I will satisfy my fury. I, the Lord, have spoken. So that's the oracle number two. Oracle number two is uh, the oracle that lays out the song of the sword. And so he's going to have a little sword fight outside of his house uh, with the air after he's given the prophecy about what's going to happen to those in Jerusalem. Then we have oracle number three. Uh, oracle number three, we're going to pick up in verse 18. So the word of the Lord came to me again. As for you, son of man, mark two ways for the sword of the king of Babylon to come. This is called the agent of the sword. So now the Lord's not only going to say, I have drawn my sword. So this is God's judgment, the sword, represented by the sword. But he's also telling them who's going to carry it. Who's going to carry the sword of God's judgment. The king of Babylon is. So now he's going to make a map. He's going to draw out a map where there's two paths. North, south, and the king of Babylon is going to come to the crossroads. Um, mark two ways for the sword of the king of Babylon to come. 
Both of them shall come from the same land. And make a signpost. Make it at the head of the way to a city. Mark a way for the sword to come to Rabbah of the Ammonites and to Judah. So he's saying there's a crossroads. You got, he could, he could choose to go to the Ammonites, this enemy of Israel, right? The Ammonites, they're, they're, those are the bad people. Most of the people in Jerusalem would say, well, we're pretty good. I mean, compared to all the other people. Oh, we do a few bad things, but if you stacked up all our good stuff, our good stuff would be, would be worse. So when, when, when the king of Babylon comes to deliver the judgment of God, surely he's going to the Ammonites first. He's going to go get the bad people. The Lord's not going to, the Lord wouldn't have him come over here. He says, so mark away uh, to come to Rabbah, the Ammonites, into Judah, into Jerusalem, the fortified. So you got this, this idea, this, uh, this, this uh, map on the ground of the coming uh, assault. And how is it that the king is going to decide? Well, for the king of Babylon stands, in verse 21, at the parting of the way, at the head of the two ways to use divination. He's going to use three methods of divination. He'll shake the arrows. He'll consult the teraphim. And he'll look at the liver. So the poor fellow who has to give up his liver, that is not a good day. He is going to use three forms of divination. They're part of the way people would decide uh, methods of divination during that time period. So the first one, the shaking of an arrows, is kind of like drawing a lot. You take a quiver with a bunch of arrows in it, and you'd mark one arrow special. You'd you maybe you would mark one arrow for uh, uh, Jerusalem and one arrow for the Ammonites, and then you shake the arrows up and you pull out whichever one you pull out first. The that's the place you're going to go first. So that's what it is to to shake the arrows. It's called bellomancy. Uh, the the teraphim those were household gods, and probably there were household gods that represented Judah and household gods. That represented the Ammonites. Or the people, the Babylonians, would have just picked two. And they would have said, well, this household God, he's got a big nose. So this is Jerusalem. And this household God, he's got whatever attribute the Ammonites have. And so they take those and they toss them and try to divine from what was drawn, which one was the path for them to go to. The last way is they would sacrifice some guy, pull out his liver, and they'd have a guy poke around in it. And he'd poke around in the liver, and he would say, here's what, here's what the gods want you to, to do. This is where the gods want you to go. And the point of all of that is so that they would understand that, that uh, they would be thinking, well, surely they're, they're not going to have any signs to come to Jerusalem. So he says, the king of Babylon stands at the parting of the way, and he shakes the arrows, he consults the teraphim, he looks at the liver. Into his right hand comes the divination for Jerusalem, to set battering rams, to open the, the mouth with murder, to lift up the voice with shouting, to set battering rams against the gate, to cast out mounds, to build siege towers. But to them it will seem like a false divination. The point is, here he's telling the people and he's saying, 
for the people in Jerusalem, they'd be like, oh, no, this, this, won't, this wouldn't be right. They, they, they wouldn't come here. They're not going to come here. This, this won't happen. They have sworn solemn but he brings their guilt to remembrance that they may be taken. The point is, Ezekiel's interpretation, Nebuchadnezzar's going to pause at Damascus. Uncertain which way to go. Ammonites, Jerusalem. He's going to use divination to decide on Jerusalem, and he is going to come against Jerusalem. And the Lord wants Jerusalem to understand, and he wants the refugees who survive. The ones in Jerusalem who don't survive aren't going to be able to tell anybody. Uh, what, are the, what do the pirates say? Dead men tell? Yeah, so they, dead men can't tell you anything. They want the word from Ezekiel is going to the refugees so that the refugees share with the other refugees when they get there, hey, man, Ezekiel said this is what was going on. And it is your sin. What is, what is, it, what is their sin? They have sworn solemn And he brings their guilts to remembrance that they may be taken. You remember we talked about a solemn oath. You remember something about a solemn oath from Jerusalem? There was a king in Jerusalem named Zedekiah. 2 Kings 24, 17. And the king of Babylon made Mataniah, Jehoiakim's uncle, king in his place. So what shows ownership? You remember we talked about this? How is it in the ancient Near East do we see someone saying, emphasizing, I own you? They change your name. Ooh, seems like there's some stories of Jesus doing that, isn't there? Interesting? Ah, I think so. Yeah, so when we look at it, it says, The king of Babylon took Mataniah, Jehoiakim's uncle, made him king, changed his name to Zedekiah. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king. He reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamatal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. That's not Jeremiah the prophet. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out of his presence. For Zedekiah rebelled against the king. Second Kings goes on to tell us that Zedekiah swore an oath to Nebuchadnezzar by the name of Yahweh. That I promise I will serve you as your vassal as long as I am king. And God held Zedekiah responsible for his oath. You swore an oath. God is saying, you swore an oath by my name. And you broke it. So, this is one of the, the things that God describes as, as the sin will be remembered. Now, it's not just Zedekiah's sin. Don't forget the people were slaughtering their babies. They have false idols. There's no, there's no shortage of sin to point to. But, but one of the things that he lays out for us here is they have sworn solemn oaths. The king swore a solemn oath by the name of Yahweh that he would be faithful to Babylon. Does God, does God, uh, uh, um, does, does God put heavy weight on faithfulness? Is God faithful? And does God judge unfaithfulness so this is what we see going on with the king we'll see a little bit more about that later but it's also important that the guilt of the people is being called to mind the lord is saying 
they're, you're all guilty. I, you know, I don't, I don't have to, I don't, the Lord doesn't have to, to work hard to come up with, with what's going on. So he goes on in verse 20, 24, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have made your guilt to be remembered, in that your transgressions are uncovered, so that in all your deeds your sins appear, because you have come to remembrance, you will be taken in hand. Nebuchadnezzar will take you. So it's the king of Babylon. This, this oracle is all about the agent of the sword. Who is the one bearing the sword for the Lord? If you study the Old Testament, you'll know there's other times, there's other kings that God gave a sword to. Jehu was the sword of the Lord at one time. Uh, in Judges, there was another guy. You guys remember him. He, he, he worked down in a hole. Angel came to him and said, you mighty man of valor, Gideon and the sword of the Lord, right? The sword of the Lord end of Gideon. He bare God's sword in judgment against the oppressors uh, against the nation. And so we, we see this happening here, the Lord declaring that the people will fall. And uh, no matter what happens, the people will face judgment under Nebuchadnezzar. And so then we move uh, to the, to the uh, appeal to the, the prince, the prince of Israel. So this is uh, the taunt, the taunt, the fourth oracle we'll see as a result of this. Uh, as, he, as he looks, he lifts up his eyes to Zedekiah, Ezekiel prophesying about Zedekiah in verse 25. He says, And to you, O profane, wicked one, the king who broke his word, whose day has come, the time of your final punishment, thus says the Lord God, remove the turban, take off the crown, things shall not remain as they are. Exalt that which is low and bring low that which is exalted. So the guy that Nebuchadnezzar puts in his place is just... Uh, a regular old guy, and he don't even last, you know, but a short period of time before the people kill him. So he says, remove the turban, take off the crown. Things will not remain. Uh, exalt the low, bring low the exalted. A ruin, ruin, ruin. You've probably heard this before, but there's no greater way to emphasize something in Hebrew than to repeat it three times. Ruin, 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 I will make it. This also shall not be until he comes. Now this is a prophecy speaking of a future king. In, uh, he's, he's actually quoting part of Genesis 49.10, which says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes. Until he come. It's a prophecy of the coming of Messiah. Here he's quoting from that. He says, this also shall not be. There's not going to be another king of David. No more kings of David. Kings of David are, are going to be put down. This shall not be until he comes. The one to whom judgment belongs. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 5? All judgment has been committed to, to him by the Father. He's the judge. Jesus is the judge. He judges our sin. He, he judges those who have turned away from the salvation that he brings to the one whom judgment belongs, and I will give it to him. Who's the next 
real king that will sit on the throne. The next real king who will sit on the throne is Jesus. So this is the end. This is, in essence, the end of the Davidic line until the Mashiach Nagid, until the Messiah, the king, until he comes, which, interestingly enough, Daniel is prophesying about right now while Ezekiel is writing the book of Ezekiel. Interesting, right? And so we look now to the, the taunt of the sword. And you, son of man, prophesy. Fourth one, here he comes. And to you, uh, prophesy and say, thus says the Lord God concerning the Ammonites. So we already talked about the Ammonites. And some of the people, probably the refugees and others are saying, well, Lord, how are you going to judge us? I mean, we're, we're relatively good, which, you know, we can argue about that later. But the Bible has some clear things to say about there not being any good, right? Is there anyone on earth sinless that doesn't need a savior? No. So, so our judgments about, about good and evil are, are, might be a little wonky. So the Lord is going to talk about the Ammonites. The Ammonites. Remember, they ha- he came to a pathway. He's got a- the Ammonites or, the, or Jerusalem. And so he's going to, by divination, choose Jerusalem. He's going to go to Jerusalem, conquer them. Um, but the Lord wants... Uh, the people to know that judgment will also come uh, to the Ammonites. Look what it says. And you, son of man, prophesy and say, thus says the Lord God concerning the Ammonites and concerning their reproach. So they're guilty as well. Say, a sword, a sword is drawn for the slaughter. It's polished to consume and to flash like lightning. Same kind of words he used about the sword of the Lord's judgment coming against Jerusalem. And while they see for you false visions... While they divine lies for you to place on the necks of the profane wicked whose day has come, the time of their final punishment. So the Ammonites are also going to be conquered by Nebuchadnezzar. He's, when he finishes Jerusalem, he's going to finish them off. Because ultimately, it's not just the people of God that are going to be judged. It's not just um, uh, Israel. It's the world, right? The world is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. We, in essence, all exist with a uh, by your leave, Lord. It's all his. And so every nation will bear responsibility to God. This, the Ammonites, the Lord wants the people to know. They will face judgment as well. But the book of Revelation chapter 19, you guys have heard of the, the battle of Armageddon, right? We hear about the, the battle of Armageddon and we talk about the Lord returning and destroying the, the rebellious armies uh, with the sword of his mouth. And then in Revelation chapter 20, you read about it again. Gog and Magog are risen for battle. In Ezekiel 38, 39, we're going to see it again. Gog and Magog. All of these are pictures of little pictures of God destroying wicked the wicked. And they all represent the reality that there will be a day that God does it for the last time. There will be no more war. They will take their swords and beat them in the plowshares. They're, they will study war no more. You read Isaiah 11. He talks about the wolf lying down with the lion. Or the wolf lying down with the lamb. And the lion eating straw like an ox. The kingdom of God. All the things that are twisted up in our world are, will all be untwisted when the king reigns. And all wicked is destroyed. And so the Lord wants the people to know. It's not just 
the Bible's pretty clear. Judgment begins where? The Bible says judgment begins in the house of the Lord. So God's going to judge his people that he's given revelation to. He's going to hold them accountable. You, you know, I've given you my word. You understand what this says. So that judgment may begin there, but that's not where it ends. That's not where it ends. And so we see the Ammonites will face uh, the same judgment. Now, just in case you think, well, what about Babylon? So you should read verse 30 through 32. It says this, return it to its sheath. Talking about the sword. In the place where you were created, in the land of your origin, I will judge you. Where's Babylon get judged? In Babylon. Under Nebuchadnezzar? No. Later. But they will face judgment. We know this, the dream of Daniel, or the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, right? That shows the fluidity of the kingdoms of men rising and falling, rising and falling, rising and falling, rising and falling. In Daniel chapter 7, the Lord pictures them all as a beast. Uh, in Daniel chapter 2, a man pictures it as a statue, golden head, chest of silvers, right? You guys are familiar. And so Babylon, the head of gold, is going to give way to the chest of, of silver. The Medo-Persian Empire will conquer. He says in verse 31, I will pour out my indignation upon you. I will blow upon you with a fire of my wrath. I will deliver you into the hands of brutish men, skillful to destroy and you will be fuel for the fire. Anybody know where uh, where Babylon is today? Yeah, it's, it's nowhere. That's where it is. I heard Saddam Hussein tried to build it, and I, I, I know a guy who got a brick out of Babylon and brought it back after the war. There's still no Babylon there. The Lord said, I, I will destroy you. Now, we read about the destruction of Babylon because Babylon becomes symbolic becomes symbolic in the Bible of a people in rebellion against the Lord. You've read Revelation, right? Babylon has fallen, has fallen. You have two forms of Babylon, religious Babylon, false religious system, and you have political power of Babylon, but both of those will come down, just like ancient Babylon did all those years ago. You will be fuel for the fire. Your blood will be in the midst of the land. You will be no more remembered, for I, the Lord, have spoken. So Babylon's going to become symbolic. We'll read about it prophetically in the New Testament when we, when we next look at Revelation, which, you know, who knows when that could be. <clears throat> and, uh, but in the Old Testament, we're looking at ancient Babylon, which today, there's nobody there. Maybe a few goats, a couple of guys hiding out, but no people, no city, no place. Nobody's talking about Babylon these days. So the Lord is laying out for us here in chapter 21 this judgment that God has that's going to come. But listen, I, I don't want you to just, I know we spend a lot of time talking about judgment when, as we're going through Ezekiel and certainly as we go through Jeremiah. But don't lose sight when you look at the judgment of God. Just do me this favor. Don't forget almost 500 years of mercy. Last I checked, you and I are nowhere near merciful that long. 500 years of mercy for the same iniquity, same sin. Idolatry, right? Unfaithfulness, same sin, not giving the land the Sabbath, not following God's word, same sin. God gave mercy 
for 490 years asking his people to repent. Has the message changed? Do you know what Jesus commands all men everywhere to do? Repent and believe. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, we, uh, we are thankful for the truth of your word and what your word declares. God, I pray, even as we have a tendency to spend so much time seeing, talking about judgment in the Old Testament and, and uh, the judgment that you brought against those who were disobedient and contrary to you. Lord, I think you, you want us to know that there is a day. There will be a day where God's judgment will come. But you also, in that same teaching, want us to understand there is a day of mercy. Grace is extended. Salvation is, has been provided for. The king that Ezekiel said would come has come. He is sitting on the throne of his father in heaven, waiting for his enemies to be made his footstool. There will be a day when the king will return. And throughout the New Testament, you are calling us, your people, to be good stewards of the things you've given until we see the master face to face. So God, may we hear the things that your word declares. May we choose to walk in your truth. May you be glorified in the, in the lives we live out before you, Lord. And may we give you praise for all you have given for us. In Jesus' name, amen.